Oh my god. From the mean streets of Hong Kong, the, uh, this is the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 52, and my name's Jack. And my name's Snake. And today, we're also joined by a recurring esteemed guest. A warm welcome to Randy Barrows. How are you doing, Randy? Good. I'm doing good, guys. I'm really excited to uh, talk about City on Fire. Oh, no, spoiler, you just said, oh, no, hold on, it's in the title. <laughs> it's in the title, it's fine. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, right, anyway, <laughs> let's begin. I mean, actually, before we begin, I have a little announcement to make. If you're listening to this show on the day of its release, which is going to be the 21st of January 2022, it will be almost exactly one year after Uncut Gems podcast came into existence. I mean... I created it earlier as in like the anchor and whatever the, our hosting was kind of booked a little bit earlier. We got Jack and Carlson to participate and we recorded it a week ahead, which is a s- schedule we have been maintaining almost flawlessly throughout this past year. Anyway, nevertheless, I started Uncut Gems in January 2021 as a way to talk about movies I thought were interesting to talk about and that you rarely see mentioned or discussed. And on our first episodes, we talked officially about Brad De Palma's Mission to Mars and unofficially about The Red Planet. Um, without much preparation, mind you. If you, we just fired up Zoom, started recording and got through a 90-minute conversation that I dread to the prospect of re-listening because I had no idea what I was doing. St- still, I have no idea what I'm doing. But we didn't have a solid formula. We're, we're just figuring things out and I think we're still figuring things out. Nicolo, you came aboard shortly thereafter. Even Randy here has got in touch. I think, I can't remember how early on, but pretty early on. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we exchanged emails. And I think we ended up getting you to guest on the show for the first time, I think, for the Prince of Darkness? Yes, or Black Hat? Uh, Prince of Darkness. In Prince of Dar- yeah, in October. So that, that, was, that was a good one. <laughs> We've had loads of... It. Yeah, yeah, I know. Ridiculous. <laughs> We had loads of guests and rotating co-hosts throughout this past year, and here we are. Um, I think it's a good opportunity to say thank you to all you guys, to all you guys here and that you're with me, and to everyone who has participated in this project, and to anyone who's listening. I know there aren't too many of you out there, and I'm always super happy to find that someone listened to our show and liked it. Um, but from the bottom of my heart, and I think from that goes on behalf of, I think, everyone here, I think we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for for being part of this journey and to mark this occasion we are organizing a little birthday giveaway on twitter so we talked about this with uh nicolo for a while now and we settled on tying this somehow distantly to our recently completed circling the matrix marathon and we decided to give away a brand new and sealed 4k uhd box set of the matrix movies naturally without the fourth one because it's not available yet and um and i think the jury's still out on this and <laughs> we'll we'll also have one or two mugs with the show logo to add to this as well so all you need to do is to go to our twitter or at uncut gems on twitter and like retweet and the giveaway tweet and follow us as well that's it and the tweet should be up on saturday 
the 22nd, which will be the actual birthday. And the giveaway will be active for two weeks, after which time we will announce the winner. So there you have it. Uh, so And then also, that's in no small part thanks to good old Randy here. Who, and then and Erin from Gar- the Garbage Pod, because <laughs> they have a T in the, in the title, and I always <laughs> fuck it up. Garbage Podcast. <laughs> the Garbage Film Podcast, sorry. Jesus, I'm so tired. Anyway, thanks to Randy and Erin, who basically just um, made it happen with their very kind and generous donations. We are, we're, we're doing this. So thank you very much once again. Um, and then, you know, go on Twitter, follow us, like and retweet the tweet on, on Saturday and then in any any of the days after that, I think, for two weeks' time. And then you have a chance of uh, you know of winning a box set. And the, the whole story is that the 4K UHD box set, because it's, it's going to be a UK release because I live in the UK and I could just go and buy it. But they are region-free, so um, I'll fork out for the ship, international shipping if needs be and then we'll we'll make this happen, so, you know. It's not like for UK residents only. If you if if you if you get it, if, well, if you manage to win it and you live in America, we'll just make it make it happen. I'm not sure what the customs are gonna say, but we'll we'll, we'll figure something out. I don't. Anyway. It'll take like half a year. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, it's worth the wait. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, also another date related coincident coincidentally, or maybe. Not coincidentally. Uh, anyway, another sort of date related coincidence, or I don't know happenstance, I don't know what you call it, is that on the 21st of January 1992, which like as of, as of, not of recording of this, but as of publishing of this, it will be exactly 30 years ago, a certain Quentin Tarantino premiered his directorial debut, Reservoir Dogs, at the Sundance Fin Film Festival. So we decided to mark this in some way. And we're talking about Reservoir Dogs. No, 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 we're not. <laughs> That's an Ica gem. That's an Ica <laughs> no, one, no one's heard of it. <laughs> no one talks about it at all. Uh, <laughs> we initially planned to do a double bill in here, but this has been shelved, and instead we are doing something else next week. But more on that later, or maybe I will just say now because, pe- like, if someone listens to it, they ne- they never really listen to the ending. So instead of doing a double bill, because we were planning to do things to do in Denver and where you're dead, when you're dead, uh, we're doing a bit of a collab with Death by Adaptation, which is Nicolo's um, own show, where he's with Ewan Gledo, they're talking about books and movies. Mm-hmm. We're doing The Invisible Man, and I'm going to be guesting there as well. So there's Invisible Man by Universal Monst- Monsters, the Lee 1L one, and then in here in, we'll do Paul Verhoeven's Hollow Man. Because that's an uncut gem. <laughs> I'm super pumped to watch it. <laughs> so there's, cool. there's that. Uh, where are we? Anyway, so instead... We're 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 just we're just marking this with just one episode, um, and then we're going to be talking about one of the key inspiration behind inspirations behind um, Reservoir Dogs, according to Tarantino himself, which is Ringo Lamb's City on Fire. In addition, right after this recording, we're also going to record a retrospective episode for our patron about three movies that happened partly because of Tarantino's meteoric rise in the 90s, which are Doug Lyman's Go, Christopher McQuarrie's The Way of the Gun, and Troy Duffy's The Boondock Saints. So by the time the show you're listening to right now is out, the retrospective will be available to listen there. And to make it extra special, because it's the show's birthday, we are going to make it free to listen. Though we strongly encourage you to sign up and support us this way. It's only $3, and it will get you access to more podcasts from us. From uh, For now, you can listen to the, tie- the tie-in episode to The Sorcerer, the chat from last week. We talked about uh, The Wages of Fear with Nicolo. 
and more stuff is coming. Retrospectives, tie-ins, and a year-long marathon of all David Lynch movies. Woo! So patreon.com slash uncutgemspod is the address. Three bucks a month. And of course, you can still buy us a coffee at coffee.com slash uncutgemspod. I'm doing all the marketing again. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and help us reach another goal so that we have some, but we have not decided yet what, what it is, but you know. Anyway, on with the show. Let's talk about Ringo Lamb's City on Fire. Directed by Ringo Lam, City on Fire stars Chow Yun-Fat as in a perennial cops and robbers story about an undercover police officer, Ko Chow, who is tasked with infiltrating a gang of thieves robbing jewelry stores. As he is trying to win the trust of these, these ruthless criminals, he, his own relationships and morality are put to the test, as well as his potential future as a cop, because he is also being hunted by a young and ambitious inspector who doesn't quite know he's an after he's after an, uh, an undercover agent. Now, not much is known about the history of this film, other than it was shot in Hong Kong and because of its obvious connection as an inspiration for Reservoir Dogs and Point Break, I suppose. What I think is very interesting is that it was Ringo Lam's first movie he was allowed to make with complete independence. I think he was kind of just a, a bit of a studio hand before. And also happens to have been made one year after John Woo's A Better Tomorrow, which is regarded as immensely influential in what it did to the action genre, at least in that sort of corner of the world. Or I suppose in general. Hmm. And if I understand it correctly, it was quite successful in Hong Kong, though its success didn't penetrate the West, if I'm allowed to say so. <clears throat> Fun fact, by the way, Lam went on to make more movies with On Fire in the title, like Prison on Fire and School on Fire. <laughs> it was nevertheless critically acclaimed and holds a 91% Rotten Tomatoes score, which is bizarre if you factor in the fact that it's very difficult to access. So let's just start talking about it. Where do you stand on City on Fire? Are you with Tarantino, who prays it to high heavens? Or are you glad that this movie remains somewhat forgotten outside of the hardcore circle of genre freaks what is your take on city on fire randy give us give us you know let, let's get us into the spirit of of city on fire what's your take sure thing. i'm pretty excited to talk about this and uh, hear what you guys have to say about it and uh my my history with city on fire goes back just a couple weeks so this was a first time viewing for me uh but reservoir dogs Going back to uh, Tarantino's 92 film, I have a, a long history with that. And that sort of formed my uh, my views on film. I was big into indie films. And I, I love that whole manner of uh, a film that 
seem to be inspired by Tarantino. So to delve into some of the films that inspired Tarantino, that's that's pretty exciting. And um, a lot of what we see here, so as I say, this is my first viewing of uh, this film, City on Fire, um, but there's a lot of... C- common ground between City on Fire and a lot of what was going on in, in the Hong Kong uh, industry at the time. Um, John Woo and Choi Hawk and Ringo Lam, they're sort of three of the, the big guys that were, were transitioning the Hong Kong scene from martial arts action into street thugs, cop action, and this, this gangster stuff. And Lam is exceptional at it. I, I, I think this is a, a great take. It's very gritty guerrilla filmmaking. Um, prior to this, the only Ringo Lam film that I had seen was Maximum Risk. Uh, but I, over the last couple of weeks, I've, I've jumped into a few other of his films. I've, I've seen the other Van Damme ones now, and they're, they're all pretty good. The Adventurers in 95 is exceptional. So it's very interesting to see the style and the, the kinetic uh, guerrilla style of filmmaking uh, that, was, that was happening in in the 90s. Uh, it's very clear that Ringo Lam was uh, exciting and a hungry uh, type of director. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of leave it there. Uh, we'll get into a lot of things, but I, I think for for the most part, as, as long as this is about uh, the action, City on Fire, for the most part, cooks. It's well, well put. <laughs> Nicola, <laughs> what's your take? By the way, is this your first, first viewing as well? No, this is my second Ooh. viewing, actually. Ooh, okay. Well, because, because, you know, again, I think all three of us are big, big Tarantino fans. Um, and one of my favorite things was, and still is to a, to a point, uh, just watching the films that inspired him, especially because he's so obvious about the references, but he never picks from the most popular films. Or, well, sometimes he does, but... More generally, it does take some smaller films that no one has heard about and makes made them famous. And honestly, Titan Fire became popular in the past decade or so because it became it came out on Blu-ray, so it was a bit easier to access for people. Um, and just everyone's been discovering it again because of the the Reservoir Dogs connection. And so I watched it knowing all about like, oh, it's the ending is literally the same. It picked so many moments. He's a, he's a hack. I was like, no, no, he's not, he's not, he's not. But but that's that's a discussion for another day. City on fire. <laughs> I watched. <laughs> it's a discussion for today, by the way. <laughs> well, well, it's a discussion for fifteen minutes from now. Um, but but city on fire. I watched it the first time around, and I was like, it's all right. And I have to say, I I really really like Hong Kong cinema, just in general. Prior to the eighties, after the eighties, during the eighties. Everyone knows I'm a massive, massive John Woo fanatic. And so when I first watched this, for some reason, like it was always badly advertised from other people because this is this is not an action film. It has action moments, but it is not an action film. Like don't go in expecting, I don't know, akimbo berettas, just people sh- shoot dodging throughout the city and just things blowing up every two minutes. No, it's not a John Woo film. It's a Ringo Lam film made in a time of transition, as you as you put it as well, Randy. It's it it came out when they were starting to shoot more in actual Hong Kong on real loca- in real locations with a lot of practical effects and dangerous stunts. But the subgenre of heroic bloodshed still hasn't developed. 
because we've only had a better tomorrow a year before this came out and so you can feel the need to change there are some of the elements that made the subgenre popular especially the central relationship between the cop the undercover cop and the criminal it's very it's very tender bromance <laughs> in a way um, but it also has in my opinion so many flaws and even rewatching it i was hoping that there would be some sort of spark from my part where i go like yes <laughs> i get it now and it's still left relatively cold it's more of a movie that i admire from a distance rather than something that i'm feeling inside and i want to feel it i want to be there and i'm a sucker for melodrama for gritty cop movies for brutal violence this is really bloody disturbingly so in some parts and it works but there are so many other elements to it that just do not work in my opinion and i think it is because it's a 1987 film didn't really know probably what to do with some of the elements some of the action and whatnot so it's mixed bag from my end well that's an interesting take unexpected probably because <laughs> normally you're, you're you're mr glowing praise and then I you know, know. <laughs> i know um i'll say this that was my first time as well i bought it on dvd because in, in the uk it's really not available on blu-ray so so there's that and i um, and it's part of like a series that's called hong kong legends and i think that was a distribution company that just existed for a brief while in the uk and australia and they released quite a lot of hong kong films and they're just like out of print <laughs> so you can just buy them like second hand on on ebay uh some of them go for real money but you know this one this one was quite cheap but hey i i watched it exactly with zero knowledge of what I'm, what i'm what i'm walking into apart from the sort of obvious tarantino connection that there's um because he, he let allegedly lift, lifted off the uh, lifted the uh, Mexican standoff scene. He lifted a bit more. <laughs> There's we'll get to it. Um, and I wasn't quite I wasn't quite aware of what I was expecting. Whether I'm expecting an action film, uh, what I'm expecting some some John Woo sort of wild wild sort of east well eastern on eastern slash western. I don't know. Mm. And in fact, I, I sh- it's kind of all of that and none of that, if that makes any sense. Because it kind of feels like it's like it, it's. Um, this will make no sense to you guys because it's 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 like a published connection thing. Back in the, I want to say late eighties, early nineties. Well, I was a child there, but then, but then there there was a time in Polish cinema which was the sort of the transition from communism to. Um, <laughs> almost said democracy <laughs> it's just post-communism okay it's still just the word democracy in, in polish so it doesn't translate doesn't really, it's it's still weird but um there was this sort of time where sort of the, the the iron curtain was taken down there was no real curtain by the way kids like you know um um and then sort of people got more ready access to um, Hollywood to films from the West, the, the American, there's you know the the, the the former imperialist pigs making films about about hookers and drugs, right? And then people in Poland in the late late eighties, this still this this thing was still permeating the culture anyway, like it was making its way naturally through, through osmosis almost into the culture, and then. And it's not like North Korea. Like we, like I think my my dad would say, like, oh, we did watch like Raiders of the Lost Ark or or Rambo. It's just it was a few years after everyone else. <laughs> but 
Um, but then Polish filmmakers started making films trying to imitate Hollywood films on a real shoestring budget. Like it feels like, you know, like you, if you go on YouTube now and watch like Ugandan action films, that's the sort <laughs> of that's the sort of sort of level of filmmaking you're you're looking at. But there were there are these films and TV shows that were sort of made to look as though they should they should endear the same sort of type of audience, like the sort of masculine sort of action oriented audience who wants action, thrills, suspense, and violence, and and you know like naughty language and stuff like this, sex, boobs, and all that. Like it was R rated, hard R sort of entertainment, and it all kind of looked like it's like an imitation of of Hollywood. And this film kind of looks like that. In a way that's trying to be an imitation of a certain sort of era of Hollywood, while which is sort of like staged by someone who doesn't quite know what this what what they imitate. So naturally, it has its own flavor. Like like you know, like if I try to cook an Italian dish using only ingredients that I have in my house because I don't have like real guanciale or pecorino, like I would have to just Im- imitate, and then would it would just be like an approximation of something, and probably like an Italian chef would probably go like, "Mamma mia, what are you doing?" Right, but you know, it would be like a like I would make a carbonara that kind of just looks looks kind of sort of like like it is tastes slightly different because it, I don't have the right ingredients and I don't have the right training. Now, <laughs> that's how I felt watching this. So I, I like it, but it also feels like it left me a little bit jarred because it, there's, I mean, we'll get to some, some bits of it because it feels like it wants to be an action film sometimes, but it also feels like people who are making this action film are not quite aware of how to make one. And some some of these sort of ideas translate into interesting results, I would say. like the, some of, Some action scenes, I think, they're just one of a kind because in Hollywood things are just done in a different way because people will just have like I don't know union laws about what you can <laughs> ask a stuntman to do or what you cannot ask stuntman to do uh, or, or I don't know they would just ask like cordon of streets and say like well ask people to sign affidavits and whatever releases no and and I feel like Ringo Lam is just like hidden in a, with a camera in a in a car and he's asking Chow Yun Fat to just run just <laughs> they're just real pedestrians. <laughs> It's so, not too far <laughs> off, honestly, from reality. <laughs> That's that is what it feels like is happening. So, so I kind of felt like I kind of appreciate this sort of it has this sort of homemade feel, but also doesn't have the polish of something like you know like Goodfellas or I almost said The Departed, but The Departed is like you know it's it's a remake of a film that's only just a few years. Or, uh, well, no, Inferno Affairs is like two thousand three. Two maybe yeah. Yeah, but it has has a sort of feel of something that like you're trying to imitate, um, like a like a gangster Hollywood gangster from like this is Mean Streets or, or or Goodfellas. It's just done on a budget and without the sort of language or rhythm that's kind of specific to Hollywood, if that makes any sense. So yeah, I like it, but I have problems with it, and I, and I feel like it just leaves some some something to be desired. I'll put it that way. Mm. Yeah. So what do you guys think and dear Tarantino <laughs> to this film? I think that's a fair, play, fair, fair place to kind of start because we'll, I, I suppose we'll just drift away into other places, but I think we have to start somewhere. So what do you think is that kind of just like young Tarantino who worked in like video archives when he watched this and he was like, fucking really? This is amazing. I want to make a movie that has like this exact scene and that exact scene from in, in, in my movie when I make it. What's your, what, what's your, what's your idea? 
Well, my take is that he was a fan of Hong Kong cinema from the 70s and just followed it straight through, just uh, being a a student of what was coming out of uh, Asia. And it just really loved it. And then I I think you're onto something with um, sort of the cop drama and this feels like it's maybe mimicking uh, what it sees in Hollywood. But because uh, there were a lot of cop shows too that were, you know, surfacing in the 70s and 80s uh, in the United States as well. Um, but I think for Tarantino, he's, he's just been a, a solid student along the way of, uh, what he's seeing out of uh, coming out of Asia, and when Chow Yun Fat comes along with uh, a Better Tomorrow and a Better Tomorrow Two, and this, um, he he really uh, feels Chow Yun Fat stardom, and probably knew him from uh, Chow Yun Fat's TV stuff and earlier work as well. Like Tarantino was uh, pretty in the know in terms of you know what was coming out uh, at at the time, and. In the original draft of Reservoir Dogs, there was an acknowledgement section where he thanks Chow Yun-Fat just for inspiration in general. So I think a lot of it could be the Chow Yun-Fat drew him to this. And then as he's watching City on Fire and he is seeing this guerrilla style, he is just seeing nothing but cool. Like this is really cool stuff. The themes work with Tarantino, like loyalty and brotherhood, cops, robbers, and, um, you know, the, the undercover business. I think a lot of this appeals to him. Uh, and I think that's just his, his love of this type of cinema and growing with it and being part of the transition and following the transition from martial arts into uh, cops and robbers, uh, drama and action uh, from Hong Kong. I think that's uh, that's what inspired him. And he probably stopped and looked carefully at this one and said, this has a lot of really cool gorilla type of stuff in there. And that's the type of film I need to make because that's where I am on the food chain right now. Uh, so that's probably what jumped out Adam, it's like, look, Ringo Lamb can do this on a busy street in Hong Kong in the the shopping district, probably on a Tuesday morning. Well, I surely to God, I can do it on a side street in L.A. on a Sunday morning. So I think that there's just inspiration in, in the style and and just that that hungry filmmaker drive is is there in Ringo Lamb in this film. And I think a lot of that spoke to Tarantino. That's that's sort of my take, just trying to read into Mm. what tarantino's motivations might be i agree it's it's one of those things that's very fascinating to me about hong kong cinema from the time because regardless of how expensive a movie could be it's it always feels so rough around the edges if it's if it's either the sound or the picture quality regardless of the restoration as well it, it always looks slightly homemade and in a weird way it almost feels achievable like what you're watching, like yeah. you could pull this off. What's on screen, you could almost pull it off. I mean, there's some things maybe not, but most of it you could. And that probably was very inspiring for Tarantino as well. Um, but even the power dynamics, and not to get already into the what's better, this film or the other films, like Tarantino took the most interesting part of this film, which is the relationship and the moral dilemma of the undercover cop with like his relationship with the one of the mobsters and he made an entire film pretty much about that it's all about character in the tarantino film and not to say that it isn't about characters in city on fire but like you said Jacob as well it's, it's a case of mistaken identities like it's 
wants to be a drama and it wants to be a thriller, but it also wants to have those cool action scenes. If anything, I would have said that this probably felt more like a studio decision where the studios were like, oh, Better Tomorrow is making tons of money. Just add a car flipping and exploding and there's fire everywhere. <laughs> it's like, do that, do that. People are liking that stuff now. Uh, and so it's, it's I don't know, I, I, I think Tarantino definitely... Well, definitely lifted the ending. Like, there's no denying that <laughs> he lifted the entire ending of the film. Um, even the whole idea of a, of, an, of a robbery gone wrong. The jewels but as well. Jewels, yes. Um, there's a few shots here and there, with the car and stuff. And we talked about the running in the street when he's being chased. Like, it all is taking all of those elements, but he's made it his own. Um, and I would say he improved upon it. Like, he made something more focused, more precise. Um, and it's for the better. And I have well, some I, a couple of problems I want to talk about later on. But I, I, now. I think what makes Tarantino's film Reservoir Dogs so special is that he manages to make, uh, and you guys have talked about it in in other shows, like a hangout movie. Mm. In essence, you've got these characters that have relationships, and you can get away with hanging out with them. And in you know, popular American sitcoms, it's there's a hangout element to them, right? Where you hang out with the cast of friends at a coffee shop or you hang out with Seinfeld at a diner. And that's something that he manages to pull into a, a Scorsese dynamic, right? Where you've got these cops and robbers. And these roles are just gold for actors. Like actors just don't have opportunities to talk this way and connect with other characters i I think tarantino has uh you know done great things with reservoir dogs and to say that it's uh, completely lifting from city on fire i think it's very inspired but i think reservoir dogs is completely its own animal because Mm -hmm. in reservoir dogs in essence we don't really see the heist we see just a little bit of them running away so we don't really get that action and tarantino doesn't really care about that because it's about simply you know the the dynamic of the aftermath the dynamic of the characters and he enriches those themes of of loyalty and betrayal that are so popular in john woo films and it's uh, you know a cornerstone of of city on fire's uh, script as well um and what i loved about 1990s uh indie films a lot of them and tarantino was was there for it is the twisting and turning and manipulating of narrative it you know not just a simple a flashback to explain something like you know tarantino has taken the ideas of these relationships and he has structured his own narrative and he hops back and forth uh to the the main storyline and all of that enriches like the commode story totally <laughs> like like you're listening a story to a story that's kind of invented and then you're listening to and you're seeing see this kind of unfold in real time as he's making it up yeah is that what you mean well i i mean that and also too yeah. to jump back and forth to the different characters uh stories individually mm-hmm. and that wasn't super common and that stood out and especially with these lively characters that have these strong bonds so all of the sudden to cut to Joe's office where mm. Vic comes in and then Chris Penn comes in and they they wrestle around on the floor. 
Like that is gold for an actor. Like what an opportunity to act in that scene. But it's also a, a very measured bit of the story. And Tarantino says, okay, enough of that. Back to the back to the drama at hand. And City of Fire is is strictly linear and there's there's just nothing special. So Tarantino's flavor comes from a number of uh, different spices that he's using. It's it's not just that he has taken the concept of this heist and the undercover cop loyalty business uh, and and run with it. Like Tarantino is is doing a lot more in Reservoir Dogs uh, than than City on Fire is. City on Fire is uh, has a different uh, has different goals. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, I totally agree that say, City on Fire is linear, but I, I do have a little note saying that for a linear film, it also is insanely complex, almost too complex for its own good. So many characters. <laughs> yes, so many characters. Mm-hmm. And they all, I don't want to say they look alike because they all, like, there's so many characters in this sort of, like the band of thieves, and then they are all like you're, you're kind of led to believe that they're that they're, that they're that they matter in some way, but they don't. All that matters is, uh, I think it's is it Sonali Sonali or Johnny Johnny Lee? I can't remember which one is it. Danny Lee. Danny 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 Lee. Sorry. Danny Lee. Yeah. So on all all that matters is Sharon Fat and and Danny Lee's character sort of dynamic and pot- potentially like Inspector Inspector is it Lao? Uh, Lao. Yeah, and and the dynamic between him and the young up and coming, the sort of the you know the the, the new banana on the block, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I'm looking at this, especially in terms of how Tarantino took certain aspects of this, and he took a quite a, quite a bit. Like when you see the the jewel heist, um, a few scenes, like the scene where um, I think uh, Fu, which is Danny's character, just blasts police officers in a car through yes. the windshield that's that's lifted in, in into a scene into one of the opening scenes in in Tarantino's film the scene where you see Chow Yun Fat gets a get gets a gut shot and then he's lying on the floor yeah. with, with that's that's essentially you know him and Harvey Keitel and Tim Tim Roth it's just all it all it needs is for them to get into a car and Harvey Keitel goes like you're gonna be okay say the words <laughs> just playing I'm dying here, man. <laughs> it is basically the heist. Like he is, he is, yes. he is totally taken the heist without showing the heist in his film. <laughs> which is yeah. which is the interesting bit because um, that's something that's something that's always stuck with me when I when I read this when I first read um, the Pauline Kale review of uh, Band Apart, where she said like when she was praising Godard, she was saying. And that's something that Tarantino himself says in few documentaries. Like this, like as a young guy who was just, I think, interviewed on the set of Pulp Fiction. Like you can see, he's still in the bathrobe that he wears in the scene where, <laughs> when he's making them coffee, right? <laughs> and, he's, and he says, "Well, when I read, uh, he says, when I read Paul and Kale's article, and he was like, that's my aesthetic, that's what I want.' And what she wrote was, it's like these um, these people uh, read a banal." crime story and 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 made a movie out of the poetry that's in between the lines of the uh, uh, of the book right and he essentially reservoir dogs as you say it's a heist movie without a heist like pulp fiction is basically a, a noir film made out of bits of film stock that you just don't care about like well these people <laughs> will just they go on a hit they come back and then you just hear the conversation on their way home they talk about burgers Right, and then, or when when the hitman before the before the heist, they go into a, into a 
into a diner and they talk about Madonna, and then they are and they and they bicker about whether tipping is appropriate or not. It is, but <laughs> but, but um, it's it's kind of like he he essentially just took <laughs> what's what's interesting, um, what, what what's uh, let's just say conventionally interesting in Chow Yun Fat's well not Chow Yun Fat's Ringo Lam's film, took it out, and then embellished what was really interesting, which is the dynamic between characters, as I think you guys both said. And then that's that's the sort of interesting bit because people accuse him of lifting and being a hack. But I think he's just essentially taking good bits and then he's just adding MSG on top of it just to make it make the flavor pop a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And in here you find it. You find that there is this sort of dynamic, but it's covered by so much and then it's almost too dense for its own good. Like I really sometimes want to slow down and just spend some time with these people. Like this should be a hangout sort of situation, but they're but they're racing through their lines, and maybe that's also a cultural sort of co- disconnect that I have, because maybe I haven't watched too many Hong Kong films to kind of just be on the same sort of uh, sort of plane of symmetry or plane of sort of analysis with these people uh, on the screen that I just maybe miss quite a few nuances, but it feels like it's just rushed like this they they want to kind of just hit the beats of a good fellas like you you want to have like a bar fight you want to have a like it opens with a brutal murder scene which actually actually looks quite brilliant with all the sheets covered in blood and there's this mm. guy going like i'm minding my own business i don't care um and it feels like it like like the like he had a he had a checklist of things he wants to put in his movie <laughs> and it just he's just racing through them and then sometimes he will just hit these sort of nodes of genius does that make sense does that make sense or am i i don't know no it does it does but it's like I, it, there's so much to this and what's not working for me in a way is that well probably because i'm, I'm a sucker for melodrama as i've said but it's almost too serious for its own good and then he tries to have these small moments of i don't know light humor and a bit of romance in here and there and it does not work. Like honestly, I hate the romance in this. I don't care. Just go. I I want to skip those parts. It's point. There's this entire scene in the apartment. It's like the wife, girlfriend, whatever character. And there's another girl, and it's this shenanigans. And I didn't care for one second about any of that. And to be they honest, they shout a lot as well. I'll say it's not even a problem of just this film. It's a problem of. Hong Kong cinema of that time because you find that in A Better Tomorrow you find that in Police Story with Jackie Chan it's in a whole lot of those movies like oh we need the the fun chemistry between the romantic leads it's like but those are pointless characters they work probably I don't know might work on the page because this keeps them connected to their past and to their real life when they go undercover it's like yeah sure but I'm watching those scenes and they are just the tone is all over the place. I couldn't care as for a single second about anything that's going on. And, yeah. and it's something that's kind of improved in the future. I think um, the killer and hard boiled perfected those relationships because they are straightforward to the point, not excessively silly and very earnest. And in this one, it's a bit mean spirited. <laughs> it's very sexist. And, but, uh, yeah, the humor is very so sleazy, right? Yes, yes. And if anything, I would have just removed all of those small, small moments with the girlfriend character. You can still have her, but already, like, 
I, I, I mean, I've read that some people cried during those the moment when she's leaving towards the end. Bless them. I wish I could have cried during that moment. Um, but there are other parts when, for instance, uh, Cho Yun-Fat and Danny Lee are together and they're like in a car bickering with one another and there's two girls that walk by and they try to flirt with them. And that's almost like a John smash scene. It's like just, a smashes yeah. food on his face and they're just making Yes, <laughs> I'm watching that and I'm like, I want 20 more minutes of this. I just, I want to feel their friendship. I want to feel their dynamic. Give me more of that because I'm, I'm just not feeling it. That's the thing. It's a, it's almost two hours long and it's still not just to feel rushed and bloated, um, which is impressive in that sense. <laughs> I well, Hong Kong was a was a factory for this type of a formula. So, like there there are a ton of these films, and there'd be a a, a ton of these films that I've never even heard of. And mm. you know, there's a few of the the cream of the crop tends to rise to to the top. Like I think before this was it uh, uh, Aces for Places or something like that. Aces for Places four. I, I... Uh, yeah, that was the film that Ringo Lam directed right before. Right before. Yeah, that that rings. Yeah, that ring rings a bell. But ringles a bell. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I don't know anything about so many Aces of these go films. places for yes. Aces go places for. So, but this is just a, a a factory, and I honestly think I think the drama is just the scotch tape that's holding the film together because it's really meant to just lead into an action scene. Uh, provide a little bit of a downbeat, maybe give Chow Yun-Fat, who has a bit of a history in comedy, um, mm. give him a chance to shine. I would suggest it doesn't work. I hear everything you're saying, Nick. I totally uh, agree with it. Like this, this doesn't work. The The drama is not very interesting. And it's, it's a lack of connection between most of the characters because the focus is, is strictly on Danny Lee and Chow Yun-Fat and this loyalty angle. And, this was this was just the the machinery of the day in in Hong Kong, and the fact that a year or two later, uh, the killer comes out with these same two leads, uh, yes. that's interesting. And John Woo entered that film, from what I understand, with more or less simply a treatment, like ten pages worth of script, and wrote a lot of the rest on the fly. Um, and I, I think that would not have been unusual. But what Wu did with uh, the killer was he stops and he lingers on faces and slow-mo and he puts a ton of effort into making that connection between Chow Yun-Fat and mm. the, uh, the the singer, the musician at the, the beginning. Like there is a ton of heart and soul and he slows it down. Um, that was wildly outrageous filmmaking to be coming out of Hong Kong at the time. And, you know, before that you had these, these films like city on fire, which were all about, you know, the beats. We've got so many scenes here that have to have action and action interspersed fairly evenly throughout the film. And, and action at the time was usually shootouts and uh, the, the drama secondary or, or tertiaries. So I totally agree mm. that that's, that's the shortcoming in this film. And 100%. does any, does any, I, I, I was trying to find this because I was interested, but I, I, I couldn't find any articles or interviews where Ringo Lam talks about what he loves, his inspirations, because you're mentioning the killer and John Woo, and John Woo loves Jean Pierre Melville and like mm-hmm. French 1960s cinema. It's a, it's a, it's a remake pretty much of Le Samurai. And 
and that's where those like like slowing things down, focusing a bit more on characters and visual storytelling. That's where it comes into play. And I was trying to find Ringo Lam if he had like some some inspirations or something, but it does feel like he is one of those people who entered filmmaking more as a profession. I'm like, I want to work in this environment. I don't know. I wonder if he was inspired by anything because he came to uh, film school in Toronto, I think, in the yeah, early 80s. Yeah, I just 80s. wanted to say that he mm. went to Canada mm-hmm. to study York and University. Then he came, but, but, but he went to acting school first. Oh, I, that's right. So he, he was an actor in the late so 70s, wasn't he? So he was an actor and then he went to Canada and he studied, studied I think, film directing and then to me what you guys say especially nicolo you just mentioned that you don't know what his inspirations are i feel like his inspirations are more hollywood than anything else mm. and then like he would watch the sort of mainstream of the time like late late 70s early 80s he would say that's what i want like that's and that's how I, at least that's how i interpret for instance the music in this film like the saxophone out of nowhere just like the guy's guys dying the guy's dying and then he's just like like bleeding gums murphy sort of solo right and then and then you have the sort of twice it happens or maybe three times there's the same song which is that's 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 kind of how i feel this film is it's basically encapsulated in this song number that they go into a club and there's this woman singing a rock and roll song which is a catchy tune in cantonese like it's it's that's pretty much this, this film in a nutshell it's an hollywood film in cantonese <laughs> <laughs> only on a on a fraction of the budget with zero knowledge of how to make this it's just like well we need to explode a car so they they just no have no knowledge of like what pyrotechnics pyrotechnics are done in a hollywood film they just burned the car and you can see they they're just like extinguishing a car and you can see there's foam and everything so it's just like yeah they just yeah, they, i think they just set a car on fire yeah you know gun laws and all of that are very very important <laughs> and you know cgi bullets and stuff they're safer but i'm watching those hong kong films and you can tell those are real guns. They're not prop guns. Like they're shooting proper blanks. <laughs> it's scary. And yeah. those casings are flying everywhere. These are the blind <laughs> blanks that if you actually try to um like I don't know, pretend you're committing suicide with a blanket, actually kill yourself. <laughs> they're gonna blind yourself, yeah. <laughs> or just blind yourself at least. Well, yeah, I think everything and the they... knives, <laughs> like there's this like, yeah. in the beginning when the guy gets stabbed, and like you can see that he has like this sort of fat suit on, but the knife's real. <laughs> there's a kitchen knife going oh. to a guy. <laughs> and then the scene in the, the the first robbery where one of the robbers goes in and he grab grabs a vase. Like I think everything is just on location and just this it's is just what we're doing. It's a real maze. You know, he grabs his face and he cro- throws it across the room over the head of a couple extras and that looked very, very dangerous. But, you know, that's just, yeah, we've, we've got to do this and we've only got one take. <laughs> if, just do a te- just to kind of just like a little teaser from last week. If this, if William Friedkin was, was, was a Hong Kong filmmaker, he wouldn't even probably tell them that there's a movie being yeah. made. <laughs> <laughs> it's just they would be like, "Where's these people wearing wearing you know masks? What's happening?" Oh, just keep working, do whatever. Oh yeah, the bridge scene would be implemented in the plot. Like if the track <laughs> falls there, it's like that's now changing but, the script now. We lost two actors on the on the sort of drama. I think when you think about when you say the, the, like John Woo lingers on things, um, and Ringo Land does not. 
and the only relationship that you guys can fish out is the sort of relationship between Chow Yun-Fat and Daniel Lee's character is because there it's the inertia of them just spending time together. Like, in the end, yes. <laughs> yeah, as we go through the film, we go through these beats, they're just in the scenes together. Like there's this one scene that you mentioned, like where there's like pe- peeking out of a car and Chow Yun-Fat's eating like an absolute pig, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just smothered with, I don't know, chili sauce or whatever. It's just great. And they're just like catcalling girls. <laughs> it's just very 80s. <laughs> While there's this sort of homeless person with a saxophone in the background going, yeah, it's just weird. <laughs> it's just, but the sort of what you think he wanted is, uh, okay, we need to have like a love interest relationship. We need to have this woman. And you say, well, well there's, it's completely underdeveloped because they sp- spent zero, zero time. There's jack shit happening between these two people. And then she buggers off to Canada. As, and then she t- it turns out that she just goes to Hawaii, and it's almost like a throwaway scene as well. Just oh, that happened. <laughs> like bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it's all because he really like he says he needs to check this off the, off, off the list. He needs to have a femme fatale. He needs to have or he needs to have a relationship for this guy. And if you actually sit down and process what Chaiyun Fat's character is about, it's actually a very interesting character that he has. Even mm. though, how, however undeveloped he is. It's this guy who's almost like you don't even get told this very much because he's it's all almost like a throwaway line when 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 he gets fake arrested by Inspector Lau and brought into a morgue and they just talk about stuff. He's an he's been an undercover cop for so long that he forgot what being a cop is like. And then it's almost disregarded. It's like that's the sort of part of something like the departed I really like when this idea of losing track of where where so where where uh, where, where where you know where up is. Going so deep underwater that you lose track of, you know, where's up, where's down, where's left and right, because it's dark and, and you have no idea. And it's interesting. It's just, you have to kind of sit down, like pause the film and then just process this for a second, because the film does not slow down, because they they have a list of beats they need to hit. They have an action scene coming up and they have a chase and Ringo Lam's already in, already in the van going, go, go, go. Right? So, <laughs> so, you know, I feel that's part of the problem, at least from where I'm sitting. Yeah, and and even the actors do the best they can with the roles, but it it never feels like they had the proper time to embody them. There's not enough material to chew on for them to get to like get right into the characters. Um, probably because it was a bit of a rushed production as well. Um, but yeah, it it leaves you feeling a bit empty, um, which is interesting, given that there are. A lot of people love this film so, so much who find it emotional and incredibly compelling and a masterpiece of the genre and one of the best Hong Kong films of the time. Are they just like propagating this because they say, oh, this is what they have to say because Tarantino loves it? Maybe, I don't know. (laughs) I like the excitement that they have. I I wish I could join them. I want to be in the camp of like, woo, woo, city on fire, baby. (laughs) City on fire is fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, once I can let go, like trying to care about these characters as people and really focus on uh, just the, the cops and robbers stuff, I'm I'm fine. But I, I hear everything you're saying and I, mm-hmm. I totally agree. I, I think that it was just honestly like the factory just pumping out movies like this and then you, you end up having some with some really good stuff in it. One thing that... Um, talking about the Tarantino connection, but I wonder if someone like Robert Rodriguez would have been inspired big time by by this, just this this guerrilla 
grassroots, you know, making your film out of out nothing approach. Uh, like is El Mariachi, like that feels like this. Now, <laughs> edited on VHS, by the way. Yes. Or Jim Van Beber. Are you guys familiar with him? No. I don't think so. Oh, no. dead, Deadbeat at Dawn. He's, he's a guy that went to uh, film school and his second year, he took his student loan and made this sort of cool. <laughs> but really, uh, you know, gritty action movie with his uh, second year student loan, uh, Deadbeat at Dawn. And it, this just feels like it's it's his type of wheelhouse. Like, how can we make this happen? And we can't close down the streets. We're going to shoot in the middle of the street, regardless of what time of day it is. And uh, this has that energy, except for those scotch tape, you know, and, and uh, you know, wood glue type of dramatic scenes that are just meant to uh, hobble the plot together. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think where this, this wins uh, and why I like it is, is strictly based on, you know, the approach and the, uh, the approach to the action and the approach to the, uh, the, the energy in the, in the filmmaking. I mean, there's, there's, the approach to filmmaking, there's there's one thing in in there that endears me, which is well, there's more than one thing, but there's one one predominantly thing, one pre- predominant thing that in, endears me in here. Um, they kind of just ultimately shifts me towards really liking this film as opposed to just being like I don't get it, or, or you know, like the because you could you could honestly nitpick this film to shreds, and then if mm-hmm. anybody else that you know, like yeah. any of our other co-hosts were here, they would just be listing things they don't like because it's so easy not to like it so many things you can you can you can name just like this doesn't work chairman fat's flat and whatever okay who gives a shit but there's this thing that it feels like as, as i said kind of just like my whole sort of idea of understanding this film is like the sort of hollywood film made by people who don't know how to make a hollywood film is sort of like i like musical analogies <laughs> so it's kind of like imagine giving someone a guitar and say like go and play music right and then they will hear like rock and roll and they have no idea of what music theory is like, okay, well, this is, this is that kind of chord. This is that kind of chord. This follows that because that's usually what happens. This, these two chords, one after another work together. These two notes sound good together. These two don't. Um, and if you don't know that, then you, you're likely to make mistakes, make music that's, that's kind of difficult on the uptake. But then again, it will be fresh. And then you will, like we will be breaking rules, and people will say, "Well, there's well, if someone's musically trained, they will be breaking rules in a different way because they know when and how to break the rules to make them look musical." If someone doesn't know that, they break the rules because they feel like this is a it feels good, so it must be good, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how like punk rock happens. And then they this they have there's so like if you like just <laughs> I don't try to understand and analyze what punk rock's like musically, then it makes zero sense. And then you just say, like these, these, like I don't know what scale these people are using. They're they're not using any scales. They're just, you know, they're just doing what feels right. And it feels like this. They do. They're 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 making a massive set piece about a bank heist, and you're expecting certain beats, and they know they they that they should hit certain beats. They just don't know how. Mm. And it feels raw. It feels weird. Feels homemade, rough around the edges. Like it feels like you have to have like a procedural element, like you want to have silence. And then it almost feels as a, as a byproduct uh, of this, it feels as though someone just happened to be in with a camera when 
a heist was happening and it's slop it's a sloppy heist as well because they these people have no idea what they're doing and they're beating a guy who supposedly knows the 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 combination to the to the vault and then if they kill him then no one's gonna know and then it, he they tell him and they, they, it, the the thing doesn't work they, they stuck and stick a knife through his hand and by the way this looks fucking real <laughs> and it's just weird and just i like it just it's endearing to me that this idea of these people are just making it happen yeah and, yeah what i love about those those sequences of the robberies and heists is just that everything is shot primarily in wides there's barely any intercutting or quick shots or close-ups or inserts or whatever so there's there's the sense of realness comes because they, they were doing a lot of things for real even where they're just running or moving around the place there's a clear sense of geo of geography and geometry and everything and when they're shooting at each other um, there's that one part during the first robbery where there's a woman that just approaches the place and she just looks out from the window like oh shit it's a robbery in place it just starts running and they try to leave the door but it's only one shot so you're feeling the sense of just this woman running away and getting away from them probably calling the cops um, and also the fact that they don't pull any punches Oh, yeah. which was not <laughs> happening in America very much. Even in R-rated films, like, they're always toning some things down. But in here, like civilians get killed. People are shot in the head, blood splattering on the wall. Um, it's brutal. It's ruthless. And, and it gives it a very strong edge that whenever we're in those moments, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm into it. That's what I'm feeling. I'm like, yes, <laughs> it's, it's coming alive. It's, it's working. It's, you know what this is like when you when you say oh like like this is exactly how I'm thinking like you're you're I'm listening to and you're like basically you're applying your knowledge your deep knowledge of what filmmaking is about to understand something that just happened, yes. right? When you say like I love how they're making this just shooting everything in wide. Five bucks says if if I if I could email Ringo Lam and ask him, <laughs> and he would probably say it's we just had one camera. And like moving and the tripod around yeah. takes time. Yeah, <laughs> just it's just we just have one everything. camera. This guy's holding it, so effectively, it's a eighteen millimeter lens. We have to capture everything in one go. And this guy's gonna throw a vase. We don't have two vases. It has to happen. Right? <laughs> so, the next one gets hurt. Get yeah, over so it. Just how, leave for the day. It almost feels like you know, and when we had this discussion with like Michael Mann's films, like where mm. it feels yeah. like it's almost like it's so rough around the edges that it almost feels like it's just a documentary. <laughs> like someone was just filming as they were just you know documenting a heist, right? Like it's like woman... a cheaper version of uh, of, of heat. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, right? <laughs> or, or it's just so, so you see this woman pull up pull up to the door and she says like, "What the fuck's happening?" and she runs away. And then you don't see what happens to her because they only have one camera and the camera is filming as she's running away. So they would have to just reset the scene and just do it from the other end. But they don't have enough film stock. So they so, so it just accidentally just happens to look real. Like it reels, it, it feels like realistic to me. It, it's these sort of action scenes. Like when Chow Yun-Fat's running away, it's all in contiguous sort of continuous so sort of takes and you can see how tired he is. <laughs> like he's just... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and and I can feel like Ringo is kind of like fucking faster. <laughs> it's just it's just dodging traffic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this is when this film comes alive, like because it feels real tactile. It feels, you know, you can smell it, you can you can feel it. I like that kind of like it's rough around the edges, but I, I like that. It, it falls apart everywhere else, but this is where it shines. Yeah, I, I totally agree. One other um, 
thing that I noticed, just again, the, the practicality of the production. So there's this uh, one scene where he's setting up, I think, the the gun purchase and he's and it's in this restaurant. And then about what in the story would be a day or two later, he's meeting his girlfriend and he meets her at the same restaurant. And I was thinking, <laughs> this is so weird. Like this guy is not hiding his personal life at all from, you know, his, the the shady people that he has to deal with as an undercover cop but the practicality is we've got a location for the afternoon (laughs) and we've got we've got two hours between brunch and supper and we can do both these scenes at once (laughs) and that's what's happening and i love that i I think that's that's fantastic like well that's the magic of cinema because then (laughs) like if it almost it feels it feels like it feels real because because of because you you feel like you're part of the filmmaking process, almost it's it's great that way. You know, yeah. I, I really like that sort of aspect. And uh, of I was I was watching this with uh, my son, and he said at one point uh, during the bar scene, and I hadn't really clued in. He said those tables are so cool, and there's a couple bar scenes, and the, the tables, lit up tables, yes, with the lit up tables so that was probably a very practical decision so they didn't have to carry around any lights mm-hmm. <laughs> like so it, I mean, it all it makes sense just, it, it looked cool and it was like we need to get here this 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 bar looks awesome yeah. Yeah. two birds with one stone <laughs> no but yeah then, yeah on and by the way like this whole idea of like not knowing what what you can do and what you can and you should not do this basically also translates like when you say well in a hollywood film you, you would rarely see um like a civilian getting killed and that's something that probably tarantino said this looks cool because this is this feels forbidden right and he gets <laughs> shit for it constantly it's always yeah but this we're talking about reservoir dogs everyone <laughs> always brings up like the woman gets shot and the other guy gets shot well, yeah you should see city on fire this woman like i don't know i don't know what she does effect- effectively does she press the alarm or it's just just an inf- inference that oh she probably pressed the silent alarm and they blow her out like just like she she, she swallows yeah. like 12 bullets well i've i've been reading a a a book about john wood and in it there's a a discussion about one of the things that he had trouble transitioning to just the the mindset of hollywood productions is uh, producers would come up to him on set of hard target and they would say well well how many people are you killing in this scene and he's like well five okay so the next scene the next scene can only have two deaths because you can only have seven deaths between these two scenes. <laughs> so that it's just something that yeah. would not make any sense in the world of Hong Kong filmmaking. So, well, no, there's seven civilians in the way, so they've all got to go now. Like that would just because be Because the... they're all worried about ratings, right? So we need uh, to yeah. make sure this is if this is R, this this so many people going to see it. This is how much money we're going to make. They're not making this for money, I don't think. This was just made because someone wanted to make a film. Like, this is going to be great. Let's make a film together. Let's take Chow Yun Fat. Um, we're sending a stuntman to um, jump out the window. And I actually read up on this. Like, there was a stuntman who did a dry run for like when he falls out of a window. Yeah. And he said, "Yeah, it's fine." So they put like mats and everywhere where, where he was, who was likely to hit, and Chow Yun Fat just was pushed out the window. Great. Honestly, <laughs> Chow Yun Fat is an unsung action star because he's all he's always done most of the stunts and he is lucky to be alive like so many people from hong kong worked in movies in that period like he's he's done everything um and the commitment works so well because when when 
like even sh- filming the shootouts with blanks and guns, like you can feel that they are they're scared, like they're startled by the constant deafening sounds of the shots. Um, it adds to the performances in a way that some of the probably safer precautions that they have on Hollywood sets doesn't translate as well. So as a result, I kind of felt like, um, you know how, I mean, on Twitter, we just had a conversation with someone about, because then they, they're remaking The Raid in Hollywood. And then it, like I'm watching this and feels, it has the same energy, like something like The Raid or The Raid 2, as in like, these are this is made by people who are actively making choices, knowing that this is unsafe. And this is the part of the greatness of this of the film is because they're allowed to do this that way. Because in Hollywood, it would never happen that way. And then, and then, and then the fact that they don't know which rules you're meant to break and which you aren't, or if there are taboos you're not supposed to touch, can you show full frontal nudity? I don't know. Let's just whoever, whatever. Can we make allegations of of some like that? There certain characters are homophobic. I don't know if this is acceptable. Let's just do it. And they're just, and it's such a, like, you could honestly just exit this film and be like, this, this film is just victimizing me or something. And, and probably you'd be correct to a certain extent, but it kind of feels like it was just a part of the sort of culture of the time where they didn't care about how it's going to be understood or read or analyzed. They just had all, all these people had a massive fan making this film and that's all that count, counts. And then like one filmmaker that kind of just pushed this to a limit and that's not a Hong Kong filmmaker but I think he took quite a lot of inspiration from Hong Kong would be Takashi Mika mm. and um, I don't know if you guys seen the sort of I think it's called the Black Label Society oh no the Black what is it called that's the trilogy Black Society trilogy sorry Black Label Society is a band <laughs> <laughs> but with Zach Wilde started anyway um, there's three films I, I remember seeing. One was like, uh, was I found it really hard to like because it feels like Takashi Mika is pushing these boundaries, but knowingly he knows that this is a taboo and he's actively pressing these buttons, right? Like Shinjuku, uh, Shinjuku Triad Society is basically like a Hong Kong film, Hong Kong action cinema, but it's in Japanese sort of sort of setting about this sort of. Um, I think it actually takes place in Hong Kong because it's about the soft triad, which will be like the sort of Chinese version of Yakuza. And there's these cops and there's and one of these guys is gay, like this inspector is gay, and then he catches a guy in this one scene, they're they're just torturing a guy. And like the police officer are, are is wrestling with a guy and the, and the guy's cuffed and they he turns them over and he rapes him. I'm like, what 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 how <laughs> how how have we ended up here? Like, what, what's going? On? Like, he just pulls his pants down, and you can see this. Who is Jesus? Uh, why? Are, why are we here? <laughs> it's just. Yeah, I know. So it feels like this film's kind of just like a few notches down from this, but because <laughs> I think Ringo Lam has no idea that certain things. That it's just innocent in this way. That, whereas Mika, I think he's just knowingly he knows that people will be like, "What the hell is what? What the hell's wrong with?" You? Yeah, he enjoys it. Mickey knows Bless what he's him. doing. He does. Yeah. He sure does. Like anyone who has never seen Visitor Q, you're welcome to see. Mm. <laughs> no, wait for the 4K <laughs> Ultra HD HDR remaster. 
uh, please no i want i want to be for everything to be obscured in there like if it's as video or in vhs as it gets it's probably the better because i won't see the detail of all this horrible horrible stuff that's happening in there <laughs> I, I should i should try like downloading the, the the film and putting it into the digital smoothener that puts it like upscaling it it's like removes all the digital grains like, eh. yeah oh, man I and then go to your local yet. shop and play it on like a 27 different screens in the shop and leave. Oh, that's, too, that's too much investment <laughs> into Visitor Q. I, yes. can't go, I can't go there again. I think it's so, in some places you'll probably have your, you, they'll probably get, it will probably get you arrested, right? Because the shit that's <laughs> happening in this film is just vile. <laughs> just... But anyway, in City on Fire, I think it works because even though it's kind of like cultural taboo, certain things that there's like, in the, even of like sexual nature, it feels like it's it's like written by teenagers who think this is this is edgy. <laughs> but it's kind of yes. like, oh, that's so adorable. <laughs> it's just weird. Did you guys notice back to the Tarantino connection? There were a couple smaller things. So we talked about the tracking shot, but the two fisted guns. That's sort of an an element now. It's not just strictly um, it's not just strictly Ringo Lamb, uh, but a lot of Hong Kong action. Uh, had the two-fisted guns, and that that was a thing that was a big uh, attraction uh, of Tarantino's. But also a couple smaller things. There is a poster of Madonna on the wall in their hideout. I wonder if that's yes. a coincidence. <laughs> and also, <laughs> when they were scoping, right? Quite possibly. Um, but also, uh, one of the jewelry stores that they were checking out is called Larry's. Oh, and it's, and it's and Larry. Larry, like, it's Larry. Yes. So anyway, I just thrown that hmm. out there. I wonder if that's a coincidence. I mean, there's there's a few, there's a few Tarantino. I mean, with with Reservoir Dogs, there's also a few other connections. When you when you think about it, he he's pulling these things from like he takes few bits from Sitting in Fire. He takes few shots. He takes the he takes the character dynamic between Mister White and Mister Orange basically anchored from uh, around the sort of dynamic between Chow Yun Fat and Danny Lee's character, and then he takes. Uh, the the naming convention from the taking of the poem one two three he takes mm-hmm. uh, I think Michael Madsen's character I think it's just like either based on a character from the Seijin Suzuki film Branded to Kill which I really didn't like mm. but, <laughs> but but this there's a scene like you know the poster scene from uh, Reservoir Dogs with uh, Harvey Keitel I think is, no what, is it Michael Madsen pointing pointing a gun at Steve Buscemi or Harvey Keitel no, 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 it's Harvey Keitel, Keitel. yeah. So that's 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 shot for shot lifted from Branded to Kill, right? And I mean, I don't want to get into Seijin Suzuki because this is a guy who just gets on my nerves. I don't. I mean, maybe there are some people I who like Branded him, but to just... Kill. Really? It's a good film. Yeah. I don't know. I just bored me half to sleep. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get this is like a new wavy thing, and just as it goes on, it gets pro- <laughs> progressively weirder. So I can yeah. probably understand why you like it. <laughs> but that's it's me. Just... Yeah. Um. You have the you have the Clockwork Orange, like using the upbeat song over disturbing actions. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a lot. Yeah, I mean, there's. I mean, I, I I like this film, and then it feels like it's. Yeah, I I don't know. I think I've I, I think I've gone through mo- most of my notes. I think I've I, I have a feeling that this is there's there's quite a lot to to like about this. But then, if you really want to, it's so easy to pick apart as well and then in in terms of like the tarantino connection i think ringo lamb should be really grateful for tarantino that the tarantino exists because it 
I think it takes a certain sort of frame of frame of mind to like this film. Like if you just picked it up off the shelf, it would be like, what? Why? Why am I doing this? Why am I? Why? Because there's so so many things that kind of just could switch you off, but you're kind of just persevering because of this connection. Almost is that fair to say? Yes. Yes. I think so. And and like in a in a weird way, just just like people like to crap on, on poor Martin Scorsese for the Marvel connection, they also like to to hate on Tarantino because he rips off a lot of other movies and like has references, very overt references in his films. But both of them are patron saints of cinema. And Tarantino, yes. like mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese, is producing a lot of smaller films from independent filmmakers all around the world. Like Colonel Mondrusco is another film that he has co-produced, whatever um, that's coming out right now. But Martin Scorsese, lo- uh, sorry, Tarantino loves contemporary cinema, world con- worldwide contemporary cinema, and without him, like John Woo, Ringo Lam, Wonka Wai, freaking Chunky Express, without him, those I honestly I doubt those directors would have gotten to make certain films. They would have still, like, you know, they would have still worked. They would have I still mean, gone to Cannes and whatever. But he's, like, he helped distribute them in the US, in Europe. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of effort for movies that he has no financial gain in. Um, I mean, I don't want to just draw, draw the W word, but I think it's it's one of those things that he had a relationship with Harvey Weinstein, and he and he actually told Harvey Weinstein that's like, can I have some money so I can start my own little corner of of Miramax, so I can bring bring in shit I like and distribute in the US, and that's how Chunking Express ended up being distributed in the US. And then Harvey was like, what's this film about? Like, trust me, it's great. And then and then so, because he would have probably never even picked it up, so maybe we'll be exposed to someone like one car white only just a little bit later because people would have eventually caught up and the, the internet took over anyway but like in the early <laughs> 2000s and late late 90s you kind of had to have these patrons these um yeah i think like the, the classical yeah. sort of definition of the word patron like someone who mm. would just take care of the artist and say like how yeah look at this shit like, this is great how about you buy this right yeah yeah he's he, he and i think he gets scorned for like lifting from films but then Scorsese lifts from films just as well only just he lifts from films that you in a way that you probably won't notice very well unless you're just into very sort of niche Louis Mal and and he doesn't <laughs> even say it that's the other thing yeah, because yeah. Tar- Tar- Tarantino wants you to know it's like oh it's like that's that's, that's the film that's the other thing it's like and then I love this one just go watch it it's the director is Sergio Leone it's like, like he's always chatty it was Scorsese like you have to go ask him specifically about certain this so it's no. Yeah, Tarantino is very forthcoming about you know where where he lifts his ideas. Um, like as as I say, like he acknowledges Chow Yun Fat in one of the drafts of his uh, dog's screenplay, and uh, you know he's more than willing to you know point to City on Fire and, <laughs> yeah. and meanwhile City on Fire was I think inspired by an Indian film if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes, yes, uh, uh, the name so, escapes me, but you know, it's, it's, it's the circle of life, right? Well. It's it's all you know, it's, it's all like that. But then if I don't know, there's there's like you you can always kind of just recursively go back, and it will probably just end up you'll end up kind of lifting from the Bible and and the Greek mythology, right? In in some way, archetypically speaking. Yeah. But then, like when you think about like how Tarantino talks about his films, like you can see that he's like this scene. 
this is my once upon a time in the West, right? <laughs> this is like, that's, that's how you, like, he, he just says, he will just point you to a specific scene and it's like, this is, this is from here, this is from there. Whereas, like, if you listen to Scorsese, he'll just say, well, a little bit of um, Kurosawa, Louis Mal, and, and he just like name drops things in, in one sentence. You have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> so that's probably why people kind of give him, let him off the hook, I suppose. But yeah. It's honest to God. He he does lift from City on Fire, and City on Fire deserves to to be lifted from because it's a it's a yeah. it's a treasure trove of of these cliches almost. It's built of cliches, right? But then, the highs are high, and the, the lows, lows are low. <laughs> <laughs> it averages out to kind of sort of all right, and that's pretty much where I stand. <laughs> I gave film. it the heart because I think it's worth watching. I do. I really do. I probably sounded more negative than I wanted, but it's you know, it's kind of hard to be. Yeah, I don't know. I could I could be really hard on this, but then again, like I don't know, it feels like it has the it has it has the heart in its right in, in the right place. It feels like it's a movie made by people who really look love making movies. Like I could honestly see Ringo Lam being like Tarantino behind the scenes, going like, "We're gonna go and do another take because why we love making movies." You know, yeah, I could I could see that he's he's doing that only in Cantonese, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, he died a couple of years ago. It did. Yeah, oh, man. it's too bad. Yeah, but, it's yeah. New York still alive, right? I think so. Yeah, or... Joy Hawk's alive. Okay. He yeah. and he and Johnny Toe and and Ringo Lamb a few years ago they had a collaboration on a film called Triangle, sort of an interesting little one, hmm. where each of them directed a third of it. Sort of choppy, oh. but it's an interesting little project. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. I feel like I'm out of gas in terms of like we could discuss certain scenes and how how they're how they're nice and whatever because it has moments, right? The film has its moments and it has moments where you're just like, can we just speed it up like at the cemetery? Like, just why are we here twice? Or oh yeah, the first time was nice. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the first one because because he had a wire, <laughs> and you know, just the suspension and how, like how they dismantled setting. how they dismantled the suspense is kind of like, see, this is how they didn't know that this may have been a taboo. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but then, um, like there is the scene where um, he goes to the uh, funeral office. I think it's a funeral of of the guy who gets killed in the in the beginning, yeah. mm-hmm. and he spent like ten minutes in there. Just uh, why are we there? <laughs> And then just show, Inspector Lau shows up with these two pictures. Do you recognize this man? No. Do you recognize this man? And it's just like he's he has a jacket over his face. How like what kind of a what kind of a drawing is this? It's honestly honestly comedic. <laughs> so yeah, I kind of like yeah. the film has a sense of humor, even though it kind of just doesn't know when to move on sometimes. Yes. Well, well, it is what it is. Exactly. I'm glad it exists. Yeah, it's given us some good stuff. So, how about we just go around the table quickly? Final thoughts? Is that, I think I think we're ready. I think we're good and ready. Final thoughts, Randy? Um, is this an uncut gem? I would say yes, but that does come with a bit of a caveat. You do have to, uh, you do have to be on a certain wavelength. You do mm. have to allow uh, certain. You you do have to allow certain. Uh, you know. You have to let your logic go, um, you know, and allow a lot of leeway. But you do get a low-budget production where you've got grassroots energy. You've got some cool sequences where 
the creative team behind it is say, is saying to themselves, well, how can we do this? How can we make this look cool? And then they just, God love them, they just they go out and do it in the middle of, you know, busy shopping day, right in the middle of traffic in downtown Hong Kong. They just do this stuff and it's cool. Uh, so I have a lot of appreciation for it, uh, for that. There's a lot of ingenuity with uh, some of the, the gunplay and the, the finale. So and you know it's it's inspired i i would have to say the likes of uh, rodriguez and uh van beber and certainly tarantino and just just that enthusiasm of anyone can make a movie that exists mm. in 90s indie cinema and uh some of what was happening in hong kong uh i think led to that even though this is sort of similarly minded to something that michael mann was doing in the in the 80s maybe with you know thief or something like that but man had a budget <laughs> and man, was man more had patience as well yes mm. he had more patience and he was going to go about it very professionally but this here is sort of like a a group of excitable teenagers going out and making it happen because it's fun and it's cool and you know a lot of it a lot of it rocks well yeah fair enough nicolo what is your final take even though I think you've 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 said your final take like three times already. I have another final take. Okay. Um, my problem going into this film is that even the second time around, I think this wants to be an action film. I kind of wish it were an action film, but it's not. And taking it for what it actually is, which is a cops and robbers thriller with pretty much just two action set pieces, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It loses itself when it's focusing on characters we don't care about. It's losing itself in some of the drama and the pointless romantic subplot. But when it goes to the nitty-gritty of the narrative of the undercover cop story, it works. And I will say the first 15 minutes and the last 25 minutes are pretty great. (laughs) Honestly, pretty freaking great. It's only that everything else in between is that or miss, but you know, it's almost a two-hour movie, so there's there's a lot of that in there that doesn't work. But it's still it's commendable, and again, it's because of what we talked about and what Randy said as well. It's just it's it's very endearing, and that's always what I like about those Hong Kong movies because I'm watching them, even not just him, but even like a Jackie Chan or or oh, the other guy I forgot, ah, whatever the Mills oh. and Wheels guy. Oh, um, it's not Tony Leung. No, I don't remember the game. Whatever. Samohan, yes, yes, yes. Like those movies, they are, they feel cheap. They have the most basic stock sound effects possible. Everything is dubbed later in post. And they like, and they love them for that. It's just kind of like, yes, because even as someone who wants to make films, like honestly, if I ever end up making some sort of action movie, I would go straight to Hong Kong cinema for, for reference. Because, you know, American cinema, it's overly polished nowadays. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, it was a bit more gritty, but it's still, like, it feels like, it feels, it's made by robots. It feels like a studio's behind it. Like, it's hard to find heart and a edge around it. And I'm, I'm watching Hong Kong cinema, I'm like, this is what I like. It's, it's all about the raw emotions. Like, the action is the output of emotion for these men who are always keeping all the feelings inside. And you have this super romantic 
bromance relationships with one another that it's it's very homoerotic a lot of the times and it's uh, yeah. also fun it's like yes yeah, it's, it's, you know it's like if i ever were to make an action film i would honestly probably go back to city on fire as well as a reference point because some things really really do work well so anchor gem is like ah it's like it's like in the middle bars i'd recommend it you know i would say it's part like part of the discussion when we always have in here is like is it an anchor gem or is it not and then i'm just and having a discussion actually helps me articulate my thoughts and then just kind of just compartmentalize what i think about these things and um i feel it is Definitely a recommendation, definitely a gem. Although I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, I would recommend it to people who want to make movies. I would recommend it to people who want to pick up a camera and go, because this is how this movie got made. This like someone picked <laughs> up a camera and went, right? Because like as you say, like there's no like you don't feel like there's a there's a room full of people making decisions. There's this guy with a camera saying, like we have a clearing. Like, let's go. <laughs> it's just like people. It's like the restaurant's <laughs> empty. We're just shooting, right? <laughs> so let's just do this. So it kind of feels like it's a very new wavy sort of, very French new wave, very, very Werner Herzog style sort of, <laughs> of filmmaking of just let's just go, let's just do this, and then let's make this happen. And I kind of like this sort of happy go lucky sort of filmmaking and i can see how this endeared tarantino who was stuck in video archives recommending or ever or as on phone to to a guy who's like i don't want to watch any more reservoir dog shit <laughs> it's just and, and just and like and and just dreaming of making his own movie and then picking up a camera like dreaming of having a camera to pick up and then just going and and shooting something on the street um because that's kind of I can honestly imagine that him, he watched this in 1987 and he thought like, he made a movie, I can make a movie, it doesn't take much to make a movie, all we need is just a lot of determination and then and a camera and, a, and some time and that's all All the, all this is, and the rest we can figure out. And I like this and I really, like, even though it has flaws and it has like the, the romantic subplots, it's kind of like whatever, why, what's the point? And Chow Yun Fat's character is kind of just too deep for its own good. Everything's racist. There is another sort of sub story with we didn't even touch on with the sort of inspector being kind of pitted against the sort of young up and coming hot shot who's just like it, it takes half the story for some reason and it's just like no one cares, but it's it's there and then you feel like this there's a movie happening and I I kind of in, in, enjoy that about that. So yeah, there's and by the way, speaking of uncutters, we haven't really talked about this. Some time ago, this kind of—I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this. Like, Chinese government passed some kind of a law when they when they've incorporated Hong Kong into the fold mm-hmm. that certain films and works of art that are not in, let's just say, in the spirit of um, celebrating Chinese heritage will will be assimilated into the blob and then never never to be released. And then there was this fear that the Hong Kong cinema from the 70s and 80s will be just never accessed again. Like, so if you have, like, prints of um, of old John Woo films and old Ringo Lam films, like, you hold on to them for your dear life because the Chinese government's going to just swoop in on what, what's in Hong Kong and they'll just like, take care of them. Because they're just blatantly, like, American films. And they'll be like, we don't like American films here. Like, you know, it's not, it's not traditionally... Tra- celebrating the the Chinese heritage in the right way because they don't like this film does not have anything to do with 
any, like anything Chinese. It feels like a Hollywood film made with Chinese actors, right? And, and it's got Western yeah. music too, which was oh, uh, yes. a, a little bit of an oddity too. And I don't know if uh, he had producers working against him on that idea, but that was something that uh, Lam, I think, used to like to do is use Western uh, I mean, Hong Kong was a, was a British mm -hmm. uh, dominion, right? At, at that time, right? Because mm -hmm. they only yes. handed it over in like the 90s. Nine, 97. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So it feels like, <laughs> yeah. So there, there's that about this. But as, as a film, City on Fire, it has it. The highs are high. The lows are low. Average is pretty great. But I would recommend it to people who want to pick up a camera as a, as a recommendation. It's like, see, this guy picked up a camera. You can do this too. <laughs> yeah. It was a work Hollywood film. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, how about we go through our top threes and bottom threes? I think I have more than three, but yeah. Randy, do you want to go first? Sure. We're starting with the tops. Tops, yes. Let's All right. Tops. So um, I will start with... Um, I. I like the lack of perfection, and I'm going to cite that as one of, one of the benefits of watching this, just this this uh, sloppy but exuberant uh, and enthusiasm in, in filmmaking. And I'll, I'll, I'll use one, one example um, because it, it stood out to me, and I'll, I'll explain why in a second. So that in the, early on, there's a, a body on a stretcher, and they pick up the stretcher, and they're putting the stretcher into the ambulance <laughs> and, they, and they, they slip and they, they drop it and the body drops whatever like be, three or four inches and uh, inspector Lau says lucky for him he's already dead and the reason that stuck with me is i've i've worked in murder mystery dinner theater for 15 20 years and that's a line when we would pick up a body <laughs> on the stretcher in the middle of the restaurant and take it out and bounce it around. And that would be one of the lines that we would use is lucky <laughs> for him, he's already dead. So, so, but those moments of we're only doing one take, so keep going with it. Like they're, they're throughout. Like there's, there's one an scene actual where... actor on the stretcher, by the way, as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like Chow, Chow Yun Fat, he's smoking at one point and he drops his cigarette like mid speech. Anyway, just he looks at it let, and just keeps on going <laughs> because you just had this sense we're only doing this once and everyone's on board with making the most of it. And that's just an enthusiasm that I, I think is uh, carries on throughout the whole film. So I love that. Um, the stunt work in, in general, I think, is fantastic in this and it, it sort of goes to this, you know gung-ho we're going to do this type of attitude there's there's one sequence in particular which i thought was uh you know really cool was when chow yun fat is trying to elude uh the cops that are they're following him and he jumps out of the subway and he runs up the steps and then to lose them he comes down uh an escalator but he slides down the escalator railing under these bumps on escalators and he hops like he's sliding down like a normal slide but it like bum hops over all of these and then on the last the last one he lands on his feet and keeps running and it's really really impressive because i have many times in escalators wondered about how cool it would be to slide down that railing but there are these you know cursed you know, big bumps these bumps there. are there for a reason yes <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> why they're because because people like you would be like I want to slide down. I could do and there, that. there's there's like 150,000 YouTube videos of people trying to slide regardless in the London whatever underground and they're just breaking their legs 
because they will just hop on one of them and will just go face first into someone. Great. Yeah. And every so, time you watch like movies that have scenes set there, they always remove them. So it's kind of like, right. oh, there's sliding. It's like, how, how are they doing it? There's always a bumps. But Chow Yun Fat, he, he goes down and you know, like maybe he did it once, maybe he did it twice, but you know, they did not spend all day perfecting that stunt. He just did it. Uh, so that was awesome. And also I'm going to cite the, I, I just love the, the running shot uh, where Chow Yun Fat is again, trying to evade uh, his tail and the cops are following him and Ringo Lamb has the camera in a van and he's just driving down the street probably on a Tuesday morning, just zigzagging around people. And Chow Yun-Fat is just running, zigzagging, probably real people. And there's just an excitement to that. And I think it's around this time. I don't remember the act of running being cool until Tom Cruise started running in every movie in the 90s. And the firm. And in a the firm, as well. The, the firm and... Uh, uh, far and away, is it like he does? Like he just seems to be running everywhere. Robert and... Patrick also in T two. Mm-hmm. That's yes. a good running. That's he runs. Apparently, they had to. In fun fact for T two, apparently they they had problems because he kept uh, outrunning the car, and the and the camera. <laughs> so he's a proper runner. Anyway, anyway, continue. Cool. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so the act of running has become a bit of a cinematic staple, and I sort of wonder if. Uh, you know, this type of a shot, this tracking shot is, uh, you know, part of the start of that. It's directly, uh, it's directly uh, referenced, I think, in Reservoir Dogs, the scene where Buscemi has the diamonds yes. running down the street. That is a, a direct yes. lift, as far as I can tell. It is, yeah. But and he the, runs exactly like someone who doesn't run. <laughs> right. And just running <laughs> oh, like a madman. desperation, man. yeah. And out of it's, breath. Just... It's just fantastic. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I love that. So anyway, those are those are my top three. <laughs> awesome. That's that's an awesome top three. Nicolo, what's your top three? My my top three is lame. Um, <laughs> no, just just the score. Chow Yun Fat and Ringo Lam's direction done. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, the score is a, an honorable mention. Um, as is the first robbery we mentioned, the stabbing the hand with the pen. There's a lot of cool moments. The car flipping and blowing up. Um, but at number three, I have the, the the two guys just flirting with the girls in the car and just the the funny thing. It's it's lovely. It's a small character moment, but it tells me much much more about the relationship than anything else in the film. That's a and good it just, moment. It yeah. stuck yeah. with me because I'm thinking about like there's so many scenes. You mentioned the cemetery scene, and it's cool the first time around. Less cool the second time. Again, they probably shot it in one night, maybe even without a permit because I mean it's a cemetery. Whatever, I don't know, but it's. I wanted more of that. Anyway. Uh, and that's about an hour in, right? Yes. So the relationship between them doesn't get going till it late. Gets, it's like 20 minutes left into film, <laughs> which is all climax. Anyway, um, one scene we haven't actually mentioned, which shocks me, but I saved it. Um, it's the torture scene, which oh. I can kind of see. <laughs> I kept it. Again. I kept Again. it quiet. <laughs> Oh, okay, just continue. It's like the second, like fifth time that's happened now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm just like we haven't you. mentioned this. I'm gonna not gonna mention this. This is gonna go into my top three. And Nicholas is going. No, um, it's a cool scene. It's a very it's it's effective. It's brutal. It's raw. It's I would probably say the only moment where you can kind of side 
with the criminals in the sense that you can see the cops are no better than the criminals they're trying to fight. They're just as violent. They're going to do whatever they can to get what they want. And probably another moment that inspired Tarantino, even though there's no mutilation or amputation in that scene. Um, it's still shot in a very... Like, again, it feels real. I don't I don't want to know if those were real handcuffs or not. They probably were. So, <laughs> poor Chow yun yeah. Even if there's makeup for the blood and whatever, just that's, that's an uncomfortable <laughs> position to be in, just <laughs> getting kicked. There's no wires. There's no nothing holding him up except sheer will. Um, bless him. And, and lastly, just in general, the final robbery. Just the tension, the violence, the fighting, the escape the police coming to the scene and just the exchange of fire, just all of that sequence is just brilliant. Brilliant. Easily the highlight of the film for me. I mean, okay. I will have to make a few substitutions because you guys stole a few of mine. <laughs> so, um, okay. I'll start with the torture scene because like, okay, well, you, you said the torture scene, but in, in particular, when the torture scene starts, as in like he walks into the room, they trip him, and he falls face first on the tiled floor. This was like a like a slapstick comedy moment for me. Like I I, I kind of giggled for like a good five seconds. <laughs> like what the hell happened here? And he's just like and he's covered in blood. Holy shit! Like he's really hurt. <laughs> it's just this is a very weird scene. Um, so I had this sort of chase scene where Charlie in fact escapes the subway and slides down on the humps. Um, but I'm going to kind of just expand it into something else. Um. <laughs> so this whole chase scene there's part of this that we like it it feels so 80s it's scored in a way that i'm just thinking to myself have they lifted the um the drum fill in the air tonight in in the air tonight and just made a whole song out of this the sort of it's just like the whole it's just on a loop it's just so 80s and actually when we're on the music that's another great moment this sort of i really like the sort of and to me, this is in the encapsulation of the film. The woman singing a rock and roll, rock and roll song in Cantonese and also the saxophone out of nowhere, <laughs> especially when the guy's dying. Just It's just great. Um, and, and then one last thing I had written down is the sort of the comedy uh, in, in the sort of uh, the romantic relationship is kind of like, I mean, no, there's one more thing with the romantic relationship, which is kind of just the haphazard filmmaking that I kind of have like an honorable mention where she storms off the restaurant and she just, I don't know, she, she, um, a glass falls over and just covers the entire table in like orange juice. And it just looks like this wasn't planned like at all. And Chowin Fat just casually just like, just puts the, puts the glass back on and it's just like, so you, might as well just go after her. She, she's not very well. <laughs> it's just, it just feels like they're trying to move past the fact that there's just everyone's covered in orange juice. It's just very odd. But the uh, the one scene that kind of just was weird to me, but in a, in a good in a good way, as in like it's very inappropriate, and you never see this again. Where, I mean, the, he sleeps on the bed. Uh, as into uh, and then he's trying to kind of surprise the his girlfriend and he grabs the wrong woman and she just slaps him and then his girlfriend gets into the shower and he wants to have sex in the shower and this the other woman walks in and he undresses and just shows her everything just to scare her off and she goes like ah! and runs away <laughs> and just and then it proceeds to the scene in the in the shower where 
I think they're having sex, but the leg is sticking out like in a like <laughs> like in a sort of like a karate sort of kick pose. I'm like, what's happening? It's just it's just as uncomfortable <laughs> as the torso scene. <laughs> yes, but it's sort of I don't know. It feels like it's just a sort of slapstick moment of like someone who doesn't know where the boundaries are, and I kind of like that because it's just like that. Like in a Hollywood film, this would never happen ever, ever, ever. You, even in the in the in the golden era of when anything went. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's kind of like you, you don't get to see that kind of filmmaking anymore, anymore, anywhere, anywhere else. And it's just I don't know. I'm happy that these people kind of just had the balls to kind of just put shit like this in their film. <laughs> anyway, bottom three. Okay, um, I'll I'll start with a bit of an honorable mention, and I think this this might just be that. Um, so I had I had to order the DVD, and I, it only had dub. So. Anyway, I think the dub was sort of bad. Uh, there's one line, I forget who said it. Someone says, you're the guy. And not as a question, like, you're the guy. And the response is, <laughs> what are you saying? It's like, I think did you watch it clear. in English? I did. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah. So anyway, I think my dub was bad. And uh, yeah, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the quality made of, from that may have filtered down. Anyway. Um, jumping into it, I'll mention in the in that apartment scene. I think Chow is acting en- entirely too silly, and the the comedy there, although you're alluding to it as sort of a, a good effort, I'm saying it really doesn't <laughs> really doesn't work. Um, it's ridiculous. Just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm I'm gonna list it as a uh, as a. As, as a bad, a bad, yeah, as a bad <laughs> element, and on the step too, where he's, he's trying to be polite and he picks up, a, tries to pick up a bag, and then the lady sees him, and then he just sort of spins away and does this dance move, and it's it's entirely too bizarre for me. Um, so next, I'll say during the robbery, the robbery is awesome, and this is just sort of a, a weird little nitpick, but whenever they're running out of the the building and the police are coming and Danny Lee pulls out the guns and he shoots twice and the police car flips. And then about two seconds later blows up That's with two shots. Film. We're making a Hollywood film. We don't I know. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they really don't. It's just sort of bizarre. <sighs> anyway. So, and what follows that is really cool. Like the, the imagery where they, they get, the uh, you know they get the fire trucks to actually put it out because it's probably on a main throughway in the middle of the day so they are, <laughs> they are shooting put the, it out, yes yeah so the, the fire trucks have to come and and that stuff with the foam like anyway that all looks great but just the the whole business of the the shot and that it blows up is sort of hilarious but this is the sort of guerrilla filmmaking like we well, we're blowing up a car someone has to put it out so we need to get the fire truck engaged so might as well film it <laughs> Yeah, that probably wasn't even budgeted or planned. Like the yeah, just keep rolling. Fire, rolling. Yeah, just keep rolling. Lau, we want to do your scene. Not until the fire truck shows up, though. I mean, yeah. it's just they don't probably they probably would weren't recording sound on set anyway. It's kind of like that's like even the the probably. Chinese dub is all sort of ADR in post. Like it's the it way they like, were doing it. It's yeah, not, it's like Sergio Leone start style filmmaking. Nothing's recorded on set because it's easier for for everyone. Pretty much. That's true. Post. Yeah. It's cheaper. Um, and yeah, sort of the bottom of the bottom is uh, Carrie Ng, the girlfriend. I, I just think her character is 
terribly flighty and terribly written. And what exactly is her motivation? Does she want a man with money? Is she really in love with Chow? Why are we? Why well, are we wants, supposed to care? She wants him, but he wants him. She wants him to care. <laughs> so she's so she's leaving with another man to spite him because, as in, like as a challenge, it's like if you if you don't show up, I'm gonna leave, and he doesn't show up. Like fucking hell, I I have to leave now. <laughs> <laughs> She sticks to her principles. Oh no! Yeah, but... she she switches planes and goes to Hawaii. Spoiler. Yeah, so right? it like the, <laughs> the flight. I would presume the flight would have gone directly to because she was going to Toronto. So it must have just been a stopover. So you know, she, she said she switched over in America and went to Hawaii. So she went all the way to San Francisco or wherever. Oh, and then and went back. back. <laughs> hey, she yeah. can afford this, you know. Good for well, her. she didn't pay for the ticket. The uh, the, I... big, the big businessman did, right? Didn't, didn't... Uh, yeah, there's probably. there's that, but nothing about her worked at all. Like I, I because <laughs> you know, like, how she cried like one single tear and and, and the sort of the, the trembling no, because... sort of da- you know bottom lip. Chow was trying, like he you know he <laughs> he proposed <laughs> and you know he was all okay with the wedding, but he says we have to put it off for two weeks and then. Basically, defense, she flips he was busy, out. Right? <laughs> and he was busy because she told him you need to be at the magistrate's office at that time, and he was, I think, arrested at the time and tortured. <laughs> so it's kind of he had a valid excuse. <laughs> yeah, that did a good excuse too. But also, like he, you know, he he explained that look, I need a couple of weeks to finish this thing. I'm on at work, and she has a hissy fit and leaves. And I, I just everything about her failed me. <laughs> this is. Um, by the way, since you didn't like the sort of the the, the full frontal nudity sort of jump scare for this woman, I'm gonna substitute <laughs> and say my another top moment that I kind of totally forgot was when when they actually blast the sort of the, the poor woman in the jewelry shop. This comes out of nowhere and it's like it seems like a, such a such a great decision. It's like no one's safe. This is I'm Sam packing pavages. That's what that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Anyway, Nicola, she moved but... and she got killed. Exactly. You know, she told she was told, "Don't move." <laughs> so, anyway, Nicola, bottom three. Uh, it's gonna be very quick. Uh, sound design, we've mentioned it. Post dubbed, original voice, gunshots, whatever, sucks. It's unfortunate thing of the times. Even in films I love, like the John Woo films, it's always one of the weakest parts because more often than not, it kind of takes me out from it. Uh, only that here it wasn't as invested as it was in those other films. So sound design sucks. The apartment scene sucks. Really? <laughs> yes. Right there said everything that needed to be said about those moments. Um, and lastly, it's the final shot. I don't like the final shot of this film. It's the final shot where it's just sh- showing all oh, the carnage and the violence and the spirit of Chow is dancing in the past. He's just kind of like totally superimposed. He's dancing on He's the just... step. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, give the, smi- the... He has this weird smile. <laughs> That's okay. This is a John Woo ending. Like he's done it in other films. He would do it with the killer, not to spoil things. But the killer doesn't have a happy ending. But it's kind of like, but this doesn't like this was laughable. I just started laughing. I was like, what the, what's happening here? I don't know. I can I can understand the intention behind it. And again, I I read reviews with people crying at the end. <laughs> just I don't get enough. where you're I, getting those reviews. <laughs> it's, I mean, some mutuals have they wow. they love this film. Um, the old film bros or something. 
But an, an emotional so attachment to this is weird. I know, right? <laughs> it really is. I kind of like honestly, I I get attached to like again, John Woo. I I I I think the ending of the first Better Tomorrow is emotional. Same for freaking the killer. Like those are effective, dramatic moments. And I'm watching Chohim Fat dancing in slow motion over the shot of his dead body. And then he just cuts to credits with the saxophone. I was like, what? Oh, come oh, on. Oh, that's the rock and roll song, right? Yes, he comes back again because, of course, the budget is limited. The saxophone out of nowhere. Uh, anyway. Well, there is a moment like early on when the saxophone is playing and you can actually see a saxophone player in this. Yeah, he comes back in a few moments. Like he's always kind of there, just crouching. Know, it's it's like Birdman. I don't know. He's like a crouching saxophone player and hidden rock and roll. Anyway, <laughs> um, I have a few honorable mentions in there. As in the mm. opening credit sequence, it's tilted. Did you notice? It's kind of like, like they they had this sort of I don't know just. I don't know, a, a picture of, like, directed by Ringo Lam, and it's just a few degrees off. <laughs> it's just, it's the attention to detail. Well, it's symbolic, because in the city of fire, things are not what they seem. Yeah, and then, well, there's film, things, like, logical, you can, like, you can nitpick, like, there's this cool shot of these police cars advancing in line on this big shed, but they're advancing through a field, and there's a road right in front of them. They could have taken the road. It's just <laughs> so it's just weird, but then okay, one moment that's kind of just irked me a little bit was like when his girlfriend pokes him with her foot when he, she she sits down on the sofa and she just claims the entire sofa and he sits down anyway and she just pokes him in in his rib and he goes like eh! <laughs> it's just <laughs> <such> bad acting. <laughs> Another one that I don't understand how it got into the film like in the cemetery and then they they push. Chow Yun Fat and he and lands in a grave and his foot lands in a in a grave and a head pops out of nowhere like a skull. I mean, what the fuck's happening? <laughs> but the absolute bottom of the barrel, and this is something that really bothered me, was when they have this sort of scene. I think it's towards the end. So when okay, Chow Yun Fat's character, he puts this little note in his wallet, and then Inspector is like, "I found his wallet, <laughs> whatever." So the, before the heist. He puts a note in his wallet, and the wallet falls out of his pocket, and uh, Fu finds it, and he's just, I oh, give me that wallet. And they go and have a conversation. So he sits down on a bed, and Fu sits down on his bed, and he starts rubbing his feet. As in, like, he's just... <laughs> this is probably where Tarantino goes, like, fucking yes. <laughs> 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 but then, what he does, he rubs his, his fingers between his toes... And he talks to him, and and as he's doing, he smells his fingers. <laughs> like fucking gross. I'm just watching this, and like, <laughs> like he takes the dirt, like dead skin from from between his toes, and he just like just rubs his fingers together, and just <laughs> just gives a nice sniff, sniff, and just a nice sort of confirmatory sort of like a little like a little smirk, just. Good shit. Like he just and I'm just sitting there retching just, just I regret <laughs> not putting it in my top moments. <laughs> and I'm just wondering like we're not, we're talking about this film and no one's mentioning this. Like am I am I the only pervert who noticed? <laughs> I mean I don't know. It's, I it's, didn't it's, notice. It's normal stuff to me. I don't know what's oh, okay. <laughs> so wrong about that. <laughs> 
I'm just in there. It's right close to the end. Like they're supposed to be readying themselves for this big heist, and this guy's just getting high on his own feet. I'm like, fucking Jesus. It's not quite your taste. And they're having a conversation about like life and all the rest, right? He's picking so, his toes. This is Christ. Anyway, so I think this is where I usually say the word City on Fire is available to rent or purchase, but I think don't think it's available to rent or purchase or stream anywhere. So you have to, at least into my knowledge, I don't know if you guys had access to it, like, um, you know, <clears throat> through digital means, but if you want to watch it, you have to procure it on DVD or in some regions on Blu-ray, but in Region 2, I don't think it's on Blu-ray, at least where I live. Uh, or you can resort to clandestine ways of the dark web. I don't, I don't condone it. I don't, you know, we don't endorse it. But you know, do what you need to do if you want to watch it. I got it on DVD from on eBay, so definitely doable. So I think this is it for this episode of the Uncut Gems podcast. Where can we find you all on social media, Randy? Where can we find you? You can find me on Letterboxd at Bratch Seven and Twitter at Randy Burrows, and you can read some of my stuff when i put together an essay on clapper awesome nicolo where can we find you follow me on twitter and instagram at nickyware97 and there you can go on linktree linktree forward slash enjoy the movies where there's every link to everything i do which is a roundabout way of also endorsing your own podcast. <laughs> it's just like yes, you can listen to the Death by Adaptation <laughs> podcast, which is now becoming. By the time you listen to this, like the podcast has officially become become began. The podcast is now bi-weekly, so there's going to be one new episode every two weeks for the entirety of 2022. Which is great because it also gives. Uh, us mere mortals with zero time on our hands to actually go through a book that you're that you're gonna be covering without having to like I we don't want to go through a great expectations if we want to talk about I don't know we remember for you for for your wholesale or something like this because you always pair up like a good nice sort of tight book with like it <laughs> so yeah it's, so it's like there's four fourteen hundred pages of something and then just I don't I really want to we can do another like Doctor Seuss and then Anna Karenina. Yeah, like <laughs> war and peace, and <laughs> it's just Christ and the Gruffalo and the Gruffalo. <laughs> just a good combo. I have to write that down. <laughs> like one of the Paddington books, and you know, crime and punishment. <laughs> the Gruffalo was an uh, was a nominee, an Oscar nominee, I think, for uh, best short animated. I believe. There you go. Ooh. This is something my daughter wasn't wasn't ever really into Gruffalo. She was like, he's scary. I don't like him. I suppose that's kind <laughs> of, part of part of the point, I suppose. <laughs> anyway, you can find me at Talk About Film on Twitter and as Jakub Flash on Letterboxd. You can read my stuff on flashonfilm.com and sometimes on Clapper as well. Uh, recently, not so much on Clapper because I'm trying to kind of just get consistently something on my website. Anyway, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at Uncut Gems Pod. So make sure to follow, like, retweet our stuff and then, you know, get in touch if you want to get in touch actually send us an email at uncontrapspot at gmail.com so if you want to sound off about city on fire or any other film we covered or just you know if you're a fan of feet i suppose <laughs> go nuts um and also if you want to support the show with a one-off donation you can also fi- find our 
web uh, our page at coffee.com slash uncutgemspot so you can buy us a coffee and if you want to receive more content from us you should think about joining our brand new patreon channel over at patreon.com slash uncutgemspod and um remember our birthday giveaway but anyway like three three bucks a month will get you extra podcasts and the podcast we're about to record shortly it's going to be there for free as a bit of a teaser and a bit of a sort of birthday present, I suppose. I don't know how we're going to go forward with what's free and what isn't. I think we need to discuss it with Niccolo behind closed doors. But yeah, anyway, so so be sure to tune in next week as we'll not be doing the, the Tarantino double bill second feature <laughs> so we can listen to our post-Tarantino retrospective on our Patreon um, instead. But next week we'll be uh, we'll be doing, as, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, a collab with Nicolo and Ewan's other show, Death by Adaptation. I will be guesting there to talk about the Invisible Man, the book, and the Universal Monster version and Lee Wanell's version. And in here, we will talk in as a sort of tie-in, as a collab, we will talk about Paul Verhoeven's Hollow Man. So look out for that. But for now, I hope you have a fabulous day and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>